Hey everybody, welcome to Liberty and Friends. That's right, that's Liberty and Friends, your weekly installment of all things freedom related. I'm your host, Big Daddy Liberty, and uh, I'm sure you can hear a bit of ambient noise today. I'm actually coming to you from, um, well, I won't name the hotel because I don't have that permission to do that, but a very good hotel here in Cape Town who have graciously given us uh, their lobby area as a space for us to record. I have a very special guest with me, um, a chap who I think you guys need to hear from, especially because he is one of the more sober voices when it comes to issues of, um, you know, the broad issues of self-defense generally in this country, and of course, specifically, gun rights. Um, Something that I think you guys know that I'm a big uh, proponent of and a big fan of. But before I get to my guest, let me just remind you guys, uh, for those of you who firstly support the show, both the Big Liberty Show and its various spin-offs, including uh, this podcast. Cast Liberty and Friends. Thank you very much for being uh, supportive of the show. And remember, you can support the show by becoming a friend of the IRR. How do you do that? You're asking. Well, you can find us, of course, online at www.irr.org.za, uh, and you can pledge a uh, monthly donation of 90 rand via debit order. And of course. If you're more old school, you can find us on SMS um, by SMSing your name to 32823. Uh, terms and conditions to apply. And of course, an SMS will cost you one rand. Um, but without further, further ado, let me introduce my guest, um, Gideon Hubert. Brother, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Sishley. Thank you so much for uh, your time and organizing this. Awesome, awesome, dude. Like, I, I can't begin to tell you how excited I am for us to have this conversation because... For the longest of times, this country has almost descended into an unspoken chaos, uh, where on the one hand, um, you know, the levels of violence, the levels of uh, crime, um, excuse me, certain categories of crime, of course, have become perceptively worse and more organized um, in particular, which is what scares me. And on the other side, um, the individual, the citizen, has become uh, less empowered, less, that is, empowered to defend themselves, having to rely on the state. And the third leg of the little conundrum I'm painting here is the state itself has become incredibly inefficient in exercising what is a legitimate role of the state, which is the defense, of course, of citizens protecting their life, liberty, and property. Now, that's a very long-winded way of me sort of buttressing where I'm going with this conversation, but let's begin firstly with who I'm chatting to here. Gideon, who are you? Why are you important? Lol. Okay, well, uh, important is is a very relative thing. But hey, man, you're important <laughs> on the show. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. So, um, obviously, I am Gideon Hubert. I am a, a guy who started off as a gun owner quite late in my life. The reason, obviously, of me becoming a gun owner was primarily for purposes of self-defense because I did not feel empowered by relying on the government and private security for my immediate personal safety. And it was a journey in itself. It was a journey in in administration and exercise and patience, discovering new ways of, of... of looking at life almost, new lenses, as I acquired my first gun. And the moment I did, and I shouldered that responsibility, I realized how important the issue is. And that if someone wants to take that away from me or any other ordinary person, the extent of what they're actually taking away from me is my ability my to be my most effective first responder to my personal crime scene. That spiraled out. I got involved in firearm rights uh, through Gun Owners SA. I started my own blog, which has rebranded to paratus.info, which is also the web address of it. And I write and host articles 
regarding self-defense, foreign rights, how all these things integrate. So that's basically who I am. I'm, I'm a bit of a jack of all trades as far as this is concerned, but my primary focus is foreign rights and personal self-defense. Leon, this is why I, I call you a super important South African and a super important guest on this show, because this is such a critical topic. Um, I mean, we've... We, we, Sorry, I want to frame this correctly because it, it's something that actually evokes a lot of um, anger in, in, in me. We're failing South Africans when it comes to issues of, of self-defense, when it comes to issues of people being able to protect themselves. We're sort of relegating them to this weird notion that the state will do this on their behalf. Um, and things just simply don't work that way, does it? Um, Gideon, I'm going to be very specific, Law, and I'm sure the listeners have heard me sort of transition from Gideon to Gideon. Guys, it's going to happen a lot on the show. Bear with me. Um, Gideon. <laughs> um, talk to us about gun ownership in this country. What are the... the, the sorry, I'm going to bring this question on you a little bit. I'm sorry if you're not prepared for it, but what are the numbers like at the moment? Um, and as you answer this question, um, who, who is the South African gun owner? Is he like some crazy right winger who's going to shoot everybody up? Well, no, the, the demographic has changed markedly over the past 15 years. There is no, as far as I'm aware, really reliable statistics on farm ownership figures. And that's due to the SAPs actually being really terrible custodians of statistics in general. They are not very good at keeping track who ha- who has done what or who has what. Uh, the state of the database is, is any software engineer or IT professional's probably worst nightmare. But from what is commonly accepted as a number is there are 3 million or at least 3 million licensed farm owners in South Africa, the majority of which are black South Africans. Uh, the black number of black farm owners in SA overtook the number of white farm owners quite some time ago. I can't remember the exact year. But the average South African gun owner is difficult to pin down. Uh, the, how shall we say it, the diversity amongst them or amongst us as gun owners is, is pretty broad. So to give you a picture of an average gun owner, sure, there may be some right-wing nutcases among us. There are also probably some considerable amount of left-wing nutcases <laughs> among us, <laughs> judging from the conversations I have to moderate on our online forum. <laughs> you know, it gets quite interesting. Including also recent posters. Um, I don't remember that poster of those douchebags are like, come and learn how to be part of the revolution or something yes. like that. Oh, man, come yes. on. So, so we've had lots of that. Um, we have quite a few EFF members, funnily enough, who are also members of Gun Owners SA. They get a bit sensitive about the politics, obviously, but uh, I, I don't really care. As long as they're willing to contribute to protecting the specific liberty, then I'm not going to, you know, I, I don't really care who they vote for. So the average gun owner is is also becoming, <coughs> excuse me, becoming more female, uh, especially on a personal level. Over the past two to three weeks, the amount of women that have approached me to assist them in the process of getting their competencies and licenses uh, has just exploded. I'm inundated. I do not actually have enough time to spend to help all of them. I'm trying my best, so I'm passing on where I can. Mm. So the demographic shift within what the average gun owner is, is constant, and it's it's moving in all directions. So we're gone. The day of it being a white guy with cocky shorts and a two-tone shirt on his farm, is those that's long gone. And it's actually a bit of a relic of the past. And um, you've actually raised where I was going to go with this topic, especially with this topic right now. Uh, where we're sitting, uh, Gideon, is right next to uh, Parliament on Plain Street, which was the site of perhaps about 
three or four thousand women who converged on that site um, to demand their rights, to demand their safety and their freedom, to be able to be who they are without the, re- the threat, of course, of gender-based violence, which is such a big damn issue in this country. Um, look, statistically, obviously, we all know that men are uh, more likely to die of murder in this country, but it doesn't change the fact that when you look at um, other categories of crime, especially a woman, for example, who's, who is the victim of some form of abuse, the state is woefully terrible at protecting those individuals. A woman, for example, who has a protection order against a man um, can't actually reliably um, can't actually reliably expect uh, the state to enforce it or to protect her. And therefore, what am I hearing? Drilling. What is it? Oh, oh. I can hear it directly. I don't know where it is. Um, sorry, it's fine. I'll, I'll cut some edit. Um, don't worry about this. I just heard it like as if it was right here. Um, okay, cool. Um, I'll take it to the point where thanks for bringing the issue of women up. Kenyon. <laughs> Thank you for actually bringing that point up. The, the issue of women ever increasingly becoming or wanting to become um, gun owners because it's such a topical issue right now. I mean, where we're sitting right now is right next to Parliament. And, you know, today being a Thursday, there was, there was about three or yeah, three or 4,000 women who just converged on the site to say enough is enough. There have been very high-profile cases in the media where essentially women have been uh, victims of gender-based violence. Um, but I wanted to get to my distinctive point on this, which is, you know, this is something, because I, I, the Big Liberty show was on the streets, I spoke to these women, and I was putting it to them directly, and I was saying, what sort of society should we be building? Do we build a society that we're cognizant of what's happening right now? In other words, we live in a violent society, and we need to do something about that. Or do we continue to tell women, for example, oh, you know, just keep begging men to stop abusing you, to stop raping you, and teach men all these nice things, and hopefully you will change society. Meanwhile, people are dying. So which do you choose? Um, and I put it to women. Don't you think you, the woman, the lady, should be empowered to be your own self-defender, your, 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 your own first responder, if you will, um, and be empowered, trained, and armed to be able to say, look, I'm standing my ground. If you want to be a would-be attacker, you want to be a would-be rapist, you will face consequences for your action here and now. Kirion, 90% of the people I spoke to were in favor of this. Why, they, why then are we having such a weird conversation in this country that veers people away from gun ownership? There's a lot of stigma attached to gun ownership, a lot of unfair stigma, a lot of unrealistic stigma. I mean, um, you remember this, this Africa check debunking of the, the you are four times more likely to be killed with your own gun than use it successfully in self-defense. That lie was debunked many, many years ago, but it, it remained a prevalent myth and it propagated very extensively throughout the media and thus also society and what africa check did and this was really sterling work from their part is they went and they dug through the exact same publications papers books whatever contacted anthony altbecker they did their research and they came to the conclusion that it is nonsense which it is it's a complete myth there is no there's nothing to it there's there, there's no supporting evidence or proof that it's remotely true. In fact, uh, the obvious fact that, that people actually successfully use their guns defensively all the time kind of rubbishes are just, you know, at surface level already. But that's just one of the things. It's Farm ownership has always been associated with 
this trope of right wing um, ex- excessive conservatism or whatever you you know whatever negative aspect people want to attach to it, and unfortunately, it's sort of acted as a break on society and say, well, we, we don't really feel comfortable embracing this. It's also a major responsibility. I would I would be happier if someone said to me, listen. I don't want to personally own a gun because I don't feel like shouldering the responsibility of what comes with it mm. that I can deal with. That's a conversation you can have with someone. But for someone to come out, as they often do, regurgitate American talking points about school shootings and mass killings and the NRA, I'm like, well, this is all cute and well, but just bear in mind that we don't live in the United States of America. This is a South African issue. So it's it's a huge mountain to climb, especially in in combating that mindset. No, I fully agree with you, and um, you know it, it, it's some of the common tropes I I, I get on my online um, feed. You know, the moment it's weird. It's like people want to project their own insecurities and their own fallibility and suggest that because they would be someone who can't handle a firearm, because they would be someone who maybe has a short fuse, right, and they might use it um, illegally, that therefore no one should have a gun. And I often go, no, dude, like that, that's not how things work. Um, but let me come back to a particular point uh, and something which maybe sparked why I wanted to, why I really wanted to speak to you uh, today. Another common misconception we've had um, here when I was talking to the ladies on the street um, is I, I, I basically shared with them the statistics of just how much of a failure the state has been in protecting women, especially that particular category of women I was, I was mentioning. Um, an abuse victim has rep- done the right, the right thing by reporting it and gone through the system. A protection order has been essentially issued, but the police become a monumental failure um, in, in protecting them. Uh, let me be precise and specific. I won't name her, but the, there was a very big case uh, or rather a popular case that, that um, cropped up in the media now of a, um, a woman's cha- boxing champion in PE who was murdered by her husband, uh, estranged husband or boyfriend, who happens to be a police officer, by the way. Um, here's this dude. There's a protection order against him in whatever fit of rage, rocks up to this lady's place and puts three bullets in her face. That's it. This woman is dead today. Um, and that is a... By the, and, there is a protection order existing in that in that particular case. I have a fundamental problem with asking people to trust the state um, to protect them when clearly there is a breakdown in the relationship between the public and essentially the police. And you raised this to me in a conversation we had off air about something called the Pelian Principle. What is that? Okay, so just to give a bit of background knowledge, uh, the Pelian Principles are something that originated with Sir Robert Peel. And I can't remember exactly what his position was in the late 19th century in London. But he was faced with a massive problem. Sorry, uh, early to mid-19th century London. A massive problem that the public was not trusting the then incarnation of the London Metropolitan Police. And policing was not effective because the, the public just didn't trust the what, as they were then called, the peelers. And in order to address this, he set up a whole line of principles about what what forms the fundamental po- principles of policing the public. That was a horrible alliteration, but anyway. <laughs> but it boils down. I can boil all of it down to a very simple sentence to you, and you say you can only police a community with their consent, with the consent of that community. If you don't have the consent from the community to police them, they cannot be policed. And we see that right now, don't we? Um, aside from the gender-based violence stuff that we, we've sort of anchored this, this conversation so far on, 
Right now, Gideon, as we speak, there are cities across this country where there's been an outbreak of sporadic, <coughs> or maybe it's organized, I don't know, but l- let me call it sporadic because I don't have the evidence of it being organized. Sporadic um, mobs, if you will. <coughs> People who've been looting, uh, going on a rampage, and oftentimes in the full view of police officers who just sort of hang about and mill about, waiting to, to pick up the, the pieces, if you will, of a situation that descends into sheer chaos. Aren't those the sort of classical cases of what we're talking about here, where the people who are essentially feeling brave enough, if I can call it that, to loot and and, and rampage in front of the cops, just don't feel as if these guys in blue have any authority over them? That's absolutely correct. They they don't they do not fear the police. They're not intimidated by them. Uh, a situation has certainly worsened post Morricone because. Um, from the conversation of I've, uh, conversations I've had with very good and highly professional policemen still in the service, uh, morale is at an all-time low internally, by the way, from, from what I gather, which is not surprising. Uh, p- the policemen on the front line are terrified of acting decisively because they know their superiors will throw them under the bus to save their own skins. They... they are conflicting directives that are issued within the South African Police Service. Uh, there's, there's, no, there's no decisive decision-making. So if a mob of violent rioters start torching an inner city, it'll take a heck of a lot to convince someone with a, a rank above warrant officer to make the call and say, okay, we, we have to escalate our response. Um, they would rather see their personnel overrun or leave the vicinity, then then make that decision and face the consequences of it. So we now have cowardly, lazy and inept leadership that is resulting in, in this situation, as well as a complete lack of accountability to the public. I mean, this is one good thing about the, the policing system in the United States is the local community elect their sheriff, right? There's direct accountability uh, and in the South African Police Service, which is a centralized monstrosity, there's none of that. And Gideon, you've hit the nail on the head here in terms of accountability. One of the, the interventions we've been proposing, and if you watch one of the episodes I did, for example, when I was at the ANC rally, if I'm not mistaken, one of the things I put to the ordinary members there was, hey, what if I gave you the power to elect your own station commander? The very sort of guy who, at the moment, you don't even know who he is or she is um, and is not accountable to you and doesn't respond to your issues. But let me bring it back because um, this Pelian principle actually really interests me um, because it's so it's so evident in this country. Let me put it that way. I mean, cops, cop, we don't trust cops to the extent that we would even rather have private security police our neighborhoods and communities. I mean, when, when you look at the stat, for example, that private security outnumbers cops five to one, that kind of tells a tale, doesn't it, of various stratas of society just simply not trusting the police. If, it's, if you're a poor individual living in a township, invariably what you often see on issues of justice is mob justice. You know, instead of calling the cops, you'd rally some of the guys, <coughs> um, rally some of the guys, uh, pangas, you name it, rocks and the like. You, you pluck this guy who's accused of something, beat him to death in the street, and then only call the cops to pick up the body. Um, if you live in middle-class South Africa, well, you would rather band together as a community, put some money aside, and have private security patrol your streets. And of course, if you're super wealthy, you live in these gated communities and, and the like. Kirian, there's a big story in this. And this is the final, maybe 
chat we'll have about saps because I want us to come back to gun rights because this is the one that really interests me more. But there's a big story in this in terms of where this is possibly going. Um, if you continue to have a society where the cops, uh, the trust in the cops is eroded, politicians essentially control policing in this country. It's not, it's not a professionalized service, I think, anymore. It's, it's, it's run by politicians, essentially. Um, where does this end up as, as an issue for us? We're, or rather, excuse me, let me take two steps back and ask, ask, ask this question. Where are we going as a society if we continue down the pathway of people not trusting the police and essentially taking the law into their own hands? It is a very scary place to be if, if, it, if it erodes to that extent, which is why I'm thankful that in, in, in some of the more sane metros, they're at least trying to, to get some sort of municipal police force, service, constabulary, whatever we want to call it, going. Um, the result of a complete lack of trust in the police is that they become essentially irrelevant overnight. Now, on the one hand... You could say, well, that gets rid of all the police corruption and criminality perpetrated by criminals in blue uniforms, which are unfortunately way too prevalent. Uh, on the other hand, we know we know what the the consequences of mob justice can be, and and what the dangers are of due process just being thrown out the window. Whether or not the South African police service itself can even be saved is that, that, that that's a long conversation all in its own uh, and whether or not it should be saved ideally i don't think it should it should be broken up into a smaller federalized system there can perhaps remain a small core so-called south african police service that's more in the guise of like an fbi type organization but the only way to save policing in this country is to decentralize it massively and you're raising some of the important points that i think i've been um, trying to get at, uh, especially when it comes to what do we do with SAPs, and, and you've actually sort of hit, me, hit the nail on the head as to where I was going to go as a final question on this, um, of what do we do with SAPs right now? Because something has to be done, right? Um, I'm definitely in support of the idea of federalizing the police. It's For me, it's just always been absolutely bloody crazy that they run from some central office somewhere in Pretoria. Um, but there's more to it than this, isn't it? I was in Germany recently, and those who watch the show obviously know this. And, you know, I, I, was, I would speak to members of the public about the police and whether they have trust of the police, et cetera, et cetera. And people generally have a glowing review of their cops. Insofar as they're very highly educated, a lot of them are degreed individuals. Um, they understand the law and the idea of law and order and the rule of law. Uh, that is, you know, philosophically, not just, you know, what, what, what a piece of paper says they must do. Um, and generally speaking, they... they know the importance um, of the use of force to maintain law and order. It isn't just something you do for the sake of doing. And that, let me be, let me raise why I say this. There's a video that was floating around on social media of the xenophobic violence where this guy was, for whatever reason, <clears throat> he was at his window, like a flat, and he was just recording the cops, you know, um, who was marching through the street. Uh, one of the cops then sees him with this camera phone, like peeking out of the window, ushers a colleague of his, grabs a shotgun, um, and fires around at the guy. And I'm like, I don't know if I saw this on your feed or, or maybe the Gosef feed, I'm not sure. Um, or even Tim, Tim Flax feed, I think. And I remember thinking, what the hell? Like, you, you are being entrusted with the use of force, and here you are now literally using it against the citizens, and then you're surprised why citizens don't trust the police. Kelly, top three things you think we need to do to improve SAPs? 
Oof, top three things. That's going to be a difficult question, but I'll do my best. So first things first, decentralize it completely. Uh, we need to remove this iron-fisted political grip from uh, from Pretoria. Uh, there's challenges and policing challenges and issues vary greatly across this country, and it varies from community to community. At the end of the day, there's no one-size-fits-all approach, so we have to decentralize the cops. The second issue is is to completely depoliticize it. It must become a fully professional organization with with dedicated, not members, employees, public servants that understand what they are doing. And thirdly, it needs direct public accountability. So elect your sheriffs, hold them accountable regularly. There must be transparency and they must be approachable to the public. So I think if we can get those three things in, that it's not all that complicated, we're on our way to not saving SAPs, but actually building a decentralized police force within communities where they need it. Okay, um, support, 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 all three of those interventions. Um, I mean, let me just go back maybe uh, to where we began this conversation and sorry to jump around a bit but it's just you know <laughs> these are things I've, I've been wanting to talk about gun ownership let's come back here um, you're a gun owner proud gun owner and an advocate for gun ownership responsible gun ownership legal gun ownership um, talk to me about the guy who's thinking about it right he's thinking about becoming a gun owner um, he's sort of seeing what's happening around him but he's thinking yeah um is this something I should be doing? What would you argue? And you can do so from a philosophical perspective and a practical one. What would you argue are some of the main reasons you would uh, try and convince someone uh, who's already on the cusp, by the way? What, what are the main reasons you, you convince someone to become a gun owner? My main reason to convince someone is to say to them, look, you've clearly considered very deeply taking direct responsibility for your personal safety and for the personal safety of your loved ones. You understand there's an asymmetry of force and power between you and the people who are likely to target you, but you hopefully also understand that that asymmetry of power doesn't mean you can't address it and that a single person with the correct mindset and skills and equipment uh, can quite easily fight back and triumph over adverse circumstances. It happens quite regularly. So if the person has already come to this sort of conclusion or in the ballpark of coming to that conclusion, I'd say, well, take the plunge and do it. Most people are put off. They are terrified of the administrative process because from an outsider's perspective, it looks like an absolute mess and highly complicated and very lengthy. It really isn't. Uh, I have a guide that I've already written that guides people through it step by step. I need to really improve on it a little bit to make it even more streamlined. But you are... Once you start the process, you will go and you will, item by item, tick the boxes off and do what's needed to become competent and, and then get your license. The second thing that puts people off is they're terrified of this extra responsibility. And I'm going to say it straight, owning a gun isn't rocket science, okay? If, if you are a parent, wow, okay, you, you have children, that's a way bigger responsibility with way larger adver potential adverse uh, consequences for society and yourself in general if you mess it up, okay? So if you can trust yourself to be a parent, if you can trust yourself to, to drive an automobile on public roads, 
If you are a, any sort of a professional person, whether it's an accountant, a plumber, a lawyer, a neurosurgeon, I don't care. Anything you do is you're adding value to the public in, in return for remuneration. You have a responsibility there. If you're paying your bills on time, you already have shouldered that responsibility. So clearly we're not talking here about people who are irresponsible. If you live in a shack in the township and you've got small children and, and maybe a very old gogo to look after and you have a low-paying but stable job and you're there on time every day and you have to navigate the absolute mess, which is public transportation from a township to any place of work, okay, and you may not be highly educated, you may not be highly skilled, but you are clearly not irresponsible. You are good enough to shoulder that additional responsibility. And I think breaking through that wall and telling people this is really not as big a deal. It is a responsibility. Don't get me wrong. It's not like, oh, I have a gun, la, la, la. But it is also not this colossal burden that is going to completely overwhelm you. I think that's what that's the message I want to get to people. Absolutely. And I fully agree. Um, and that really covers the, the personal elements of it. But one of the things that interests me and what we forget sometimes, even as the gun owning community, we forget uh, one of the major reasons for why um, we should be um, encouraging a gun owning society is the idea that trusting the state also is, is a problematic thing. Um, the Americans inculcated this quite wisely in their constitution through the Second Amendment, which essentially gives every American citizen the right to bear arms and expressly says, you know, it's in... In defense, excuse me, um, that uh, lamb and soda came back for a moment. Um, but it, it's, it's especially, you know, uh, to protect citizens from the tyranny, the potential tyranny of the state. I mean, imagine, as activists sometimes do in this country, they say, oh, no, um, private citizens should never have guns. Only the government should have guns. And then you systematically explain to them why this is a problem and show them the record of history of why this is a, this is a problem. And some of them get it, get it and some of them don't. Your thoughts on that, um, Kylian? Well, uh, first and foremost, I'd like to bust the myth that a gun-free society exists. Uh, even in China, there are 40 million firearms in the hands of civilians, licensed and unlicensed. That's 40 million. They are almost twice the number of guns owned by the Chinese government, okay? This is something that not a lot of people know. Uh, in countries where civilian firearm ownership has been banned, horrible things have happened in order to implement it and then as a consequence. So Jamaica banned uh, civilian firearm ownership of guns in the mid-1970s and within, within six years, the homicide rate quadrupled and the manner in which these guns were seized from Jamaicans was absolutely atrocious. The military literally blocked off whole neighborhoods and then the police went door to door with warrantless search and seizures to find guns. So the amount of civil rights that are trampled over in order to facilitate a gun confiscation are massive. It's the same thing happened in Venezuela. In 2012, I think uh, they banned civilian firearm ownership. Look where the country is now. It's um, Gun control isn't really an argument about keeping guns out of the hands of people ill-suited to have them. It's an argument about do you want the government to have the sole monopoly on armed force or, or do you not want it? It's a very binary conversation. It's either a yes or a no because as soon as we start talking about degrees in between, it always leans in one direction. And politicians and government officials do not like armed citizens. They like to have the monopoly on force because it makes their job easier and they... You know, and they've got nothing then to be afraid of, of armed citizens becoming a bit uproarious when they start stealing money or uh, grabbing power. 
Um, there was another thing actually I wanted to add to that, and that's completely slipped my mind now, but it was a bit of a profound point. Uh, maybe whilst you're thinking about it, um, let me f- fully agree with you, uh, because, you know, and you, you, you named the very societies <coughs> that have had this problem, where essentially politicians recognize that they're on the cusp of real um, authoritarian power, but a armed citizenry gets in the way of that. Um, and by the way, being an armed citizenry doesn't mean we're all like crazy kooks, you know, we're going to shoot up government buildings, shoot up um, officials. <laughs> uh, definitely not. But it's, it's, it's making this point that if you have a country defined by civil liberties and rights, the best way to defend those is to actually have those citizens be their own um, defenders of those, of those, um, of those rights. Um, your point. Did you remember your point? I did remember my point. Okay, yes. so a couple of years ago, it was actually after, I don't know if you remember the, the, the Westgate Mall massacre in Nairobi, Kenya. Yes, yes. Okay, it was quite a bad one. In the, in the wake of that, the then Secretary General of Interpol, uh, Ronald Noble, I think he was actually the first black man to be the Secretary General of Interpol. Uh, possibly. I'm not 100% sure. I'll have to follow up. But he, he said quite a profound thing. And he, he mentioned the benefit of armed civilians to national security and he expanded a little bit on it and he said look it's it's quite clear that you know the authority he's an american so he thinks from an american law enforcement perspective about this but his idea is that law enforcement authorities can only respond unless they get really good intelligence and they can interdict or intercept an attack or or preemptively stop it if there is a terror attack on civilians they are going to be the first people to take the hit. And if they have the capacity to respond to the terror attack by, let's say, keep it basic, shooting the terrorist, then you've, you've nipped it in the bud. You've, you've stopped the attack before it could escalate, escalate further. Absolutely. And that's actually what happened in, in quite a few of the terror attacks in Nairobi subsequently is armed civilians have rushed to the scene in order to, to not necessarily attack the terrorists but to extract their loved ones and they've been quite successful in that so ronald noble touches on that point but then again he's not a politician he he speaks from his extensive law enforcement experience and i wish that our own government could wake up to the fact when they look past their own paranoia of armed citizens that having armed gunner having armed competent south african citizens is a benefit to the inter- it's almost like herd immunity because criminals don't know who's armed. Exactly. Uh, therefore, the cost of committing violent crime increases, mm-hmm. or the opportunity cost of it, rather, because you don't know if the next guy you're going to try rob is going to punch your ticket, exactly. and that's the end of your career. Mm. Um, but that's also an, in a whole other topic to explore. Kirion, mm. I've kept you long enough. Um, and maybe as we move to the tail end of this conversation, um, there's, there's, there's two things I have on my mind here. And one of which I care deeply about, especially given the context of today. And I want to bring it back to, you know, this, this women's march that we saw happen on, on our streets. Um, there is just something innately important about having a conversation, a wider conversation with, with South Africans about the importance of, again, not putting a gun in everybody's hands. Because that's the usual trope response. We get, oh, oh, you want guns in everybody's hands so we can shoot each other up. no, no. That's not where we're going. What we're basically saying is those of you who are responsible, 
who recognize that you want to take responsibility for your own personal safety and that of your loved ones should consider this and not just consider it without training and, and being proficient in the use of a firearm. G, as a final point or final two questions, sorry, what prompted you? Um, I know I kind of asked it earlier on, but I wanted to do a little bit, a little bit more personal on this one. What prompted you to become a gun owner and why was it super important for you? Because I, I think you recently married or you... Been, been married for you now. Now my wife is probably going to listen to this. <laughs> I have to count carefully, but been married for nine years. Oh, okay, sorry. So nine. recently was wrong. <laughs> um, but she's now completed her com- all her competencies as well, finally. So she's very much on, on the road to becoming an armed woman. Uh, what prompted me to become a gun owner mm. is... To, to boil it down to base elements was a gradual and then sudden and quite violent realization that when I am in immediate mortal peril, no one's coming to save me. And I can try and save myself, but I can only get so far with a pointy stick or a, or a can of OC spray. And that at the end of the day, the ultimate force equalizer between myself and a bunch of violent men is a nine millimeter pistol which still to this at present day is the most compact and effective form of projecting lethal force for the average person i mean you know we can talk about caliber debates another time but that's that that's the crux of it and until we invent something better that's more effective at doing it that's what it's going to be yes it's a last resort but Lethal force is a last resort you want access to because when you need it and you don't have it is is a far worse situation than the burden of having it and never needing it. Yeah, spot on. Hey Amen. I, I couldn't have said that any better. And um, maybe as, as we look to wrap up, um, and I'm, I'm going to give you a chance to sort of punch your socials because I know you, you write a lot on this topic and I really encourage people to read a lot of the material um, that Achidion puts out. Um, what would you like? What's the ideal looking South African society to you? And you don't have to stick to guns on this one. Um, you know, take me through what you would argue is an ideal South African society, one in which you can stake your future uh, on. Um, yeah. My ideal South African society is actually very simple. It's, it's one of mutual respect and understanding. It's, I've always despised this idea that we must all sit around the same campfire, kumbaya and whatever, this this forced integration, social engineering nonsense. That's just not how it works. It's a very naive uh, idea of a rainbow nation because the reality is there are a lot of people who just frankly don't get along and we will not like each other. But if we can, at the very least, tolerate the differences and understand where we fit into the bigger social sphere and say, listen, I might not like you a hell of a lot. I might not like your culture or what you do. But I'm, I respect you and I tolerate you and I respect your right to be who you are as long as you do not predate upon me. And that's, I don't think that's a big ask. I think that is an achievable ideal. It just will require quite a bit of, bit of work still, I think. Man, I hear you. Totally agree. Um, and that is exactly how you actually build a freedom-loving <clears throat> and prosperous society, one in which there is toleration. These are very strong liberal concepts that we sometimes forget. Um, and, you know, there's this weird, uh, again, sorry to parrot you, but there's this weird kumbaya-esque um, notion that you can force certain people to try and um, um, and get along. When it just it doesn't work that way. Um, 
sorry, I've, I've lost my train of thought. But what, what I what I actually wanted to say was, you you raised a very strong liberal principle, the idea that you can have a very diverse society where, look, there's 55 million South Africans. You know, some of them won't get along, um, but all South Africans have to have the right to safety and the liberty to be able to protect themselves. And that's where gun ownership for me is super important, both in terms of a way of staving off the potential tyranny of, of the state, which, by the way, in this country is a real threat. I mean, we have a government which is incredibly leftist and sees itself as um, needing to be the arbiter of all things in society, deciding all things on our behalf. So gun ownership is important there, but it's also important on the day-to-day -day stuff that we face as South Africans, which is the crime. Um, and and Khidiyan made the point, you know, do you want to be in a situation where it would have been better for you to actually be armed and you can defend yourself um, and you had the means to defend yourself? Or do you want to be the South African who goes, oh, well, you know, let's, let's make sure that the, the government can respond effectively on my behalf. And those two aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, um, but we're basically saying both should be happening at the same time. People who want to arm themselves should have the liberty to do so. And of course, at the same time, we need to put pressure on the state to get its uh, job um, or to get what is its rightful role uh, right. And Khidian, maybe on that final uh, point, um, final thoughts on your side and um, how can people find your your, your writing and uh, you on social media? Okay, final thoughts is I would just like to remind the public and listeners of our National Commission of Police who I think on the 30th of October last year said that the South African Police Service is overstretched and that it is impossible, he used the words, impossible to fulfill its constitutional mandate. His words. His words. I will actually make a meme of it and link back to the original footage just to make so that everyone can see that I'm not sucking this out of my thumb, which is a damning indictment of the state of law enforcement in this country. This is, comes long before the budget cuts and all this other stuff. So you are going to be, whether you like it or not, somehow responsible for your personal safety. This regarding where you can find me. So my website is www.paratus.info. I've got a Facebook page. I've got a Twitter account, which isn't very active. And the reason why my Twitter account is not very active is because I just don't like the environment that Twitter operates in. And I've got it's, a, just, it's, it's, it's just it's just too much. I just don't have that amount of time to get into that many fights. Um, I have a parrot for that. <laughs> I've seen your African grey dog. Dog, I know African greys. They will bite. They, they will bite. Yeah, so if I want to get bitten, I don't need to go on Twitter. I just oh, need to, exactly. to socialize with my parrot. And then there's an Instagram account attached as well. So you can find me there. Uh, please do pop in. Uh, I try to publish as regularly as possible and mostly useful stuff. What I like to believe is useful. Kenyan, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Dude, you are an absolute legend, absolute champ. <clears throat> and uh, Gideon, by the way, is on the Big Liberty show. We have an episode where he shot quite a while back, um, where we actually discussed a lot of these concepts. We're actually at the range in... Um, a false baseball false shooting club. Right. Yeah, it was a fantastic yeah. episode. You can also catch that on the Big Liberty show. Um, and Gideon is someone who I'll actually have on the show quite a lot as a contributing voice on this particular issue because you guys know where I stand on this. We have to become a nation that takes um, the personal responsibility of our safety uh, very seriously. And that conversation is a gun conversation also. Um, and a, and a conversation, excuse me, about responsible gun ownership. Um, and yeah, anyway... Without waffling away, Khidion, um, thank you very much for joining me on the show. Um, and thank you to the listener for being a part of the show. I mean, the liberty, liberty, 
The Big Liberty Show is wholly dependent on you guys. And this format, this podcast format, the Liberty and Friends Show, um, is one which is I'm hoping I can grow. Guys, you can support the show, as I said earlier on, by becoming a friend of the IRR. <clears throat> How do you do that? You can find us online at www.irr.org.za forward slash join. Or, of course, you can SMS your name to 32823. Uh, an SMS will cost you one rand. Terms and conditions apply. It's you, the South African, who's donating 90 rand a month to the show that is helping me get out here to talk to South Africans, interesting and awesome South Africans like Gideon and others on our street views, for example, and having their voices be more important than those of the politicians. Guys, thank you so much for listening. And remember, never trust a commie.